Well, Merry Christmas. Well, amen. I appreciate all the music. <clears throat> As the children were singing, I thought about the little fella who had a part in the Christmas pageant. And in his part was to quote the Lord's, or the model prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven. It was one of those parts. And so he kind of got confused. And when he got to the place where it says, And forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, he said, and forgive us, Lord, our Christmases. <laughs> Don't laugh. As we forgive those who Christmas against us. <laughs> Truth be known, we need to ask God at times to forgive us for our Christmases. He said a mouthful, did he not? And I'm so thankful that our children were able to stand here today and sing about that glorious night. The most important aspect of what it means uh, to be a child of God and to worship Him on this day. Seven centuries ago, a Christmas carol, often sung today, was written in Latin. And the title was, With Sweet Shouting. A little later, the great composer Bach liked it so much that he arranged it to be played by the organ. And then John Mason Neal later standardized the Christian hymn uh, into English. And it's the hymn that we sang today called, Good Christian Men Rejoice. What a great song. And that should be true for us this morning. Christian men and women ought to be rejoicing uh, in the Lord. The first stanza tells us what every Christian understands about what we celebrate as Christmas. It says, Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give ye heed to what we say, Jesus Christ is born today. Ox and ass before him bow. He is in a manger now. Christ is born today. Christ is born today. Now, even the world understands that Christians celebrate Christmas as the birthday of Christ. But the reason why good Christian men rejoice is in the second stanza. Listen to it. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. Listen. He hath opened the heavenly door and man is blessed forevermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Now, what does it mean to say he hath opened heaven's door? Well, obviously a door opens both ways. It's an exit. And it's an entrance. And what you need to understand this morning is because Jesus walked out of heaven, you can walk in to heaven. That's what Christmas is about. Thank God that the Son of God walked out of heaven so that we might can walk in to heaven. Without that, you have no chance of an eternity with the Lord. Thank God for that. This morning... I want you to take your copy of God's Word, and let's look at a phenomenal Christmas passage. Let's call it an incarnation passage. It's exactly, it tells us exactly what Jesus did. The Son of God stepped out of heaven. He hath opened heaven's door for us. Hebrews chapter 2, let's get a running start. Pick up as in verse 10. What better day to stand in honor of God's reading, right, than the day that we celebrate the incarnation Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that He, we're talking about Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, that means that 
Jesus, the Son of God, is the Creator of all things. See that clearly. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Now verse 14 through 16, here's the sermon. 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To God be the glory. What a text. You may be seated. Let's unpack the true meaning of Christmas from our passage today. Let it speak to our hearts. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. Here's what Christmas means. Jesus accepted our flesh. Write that down. Jesus accepted our flesh. When Christ was born, God accepted our flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Someone beautifully has said Jesus is the Christmas name of God. I like that. Jesus is the Christmas name of God. Jesus is the name that identifies God in His incarnation into human flesh. Notice what the passage says. As the children are partakers, that's the word co-sharers, in flesh and blood, the Bible says He Himself likewise took part, co-shared in the same. Now, those are not the same two Greek words. And the ESV does a pretty good job with share and partook of. They're, they're not the same words. The first one is koinonia. Anybody know what that means? It means fellowship. You would recognize that word in the Greek. A lot of youth groups are called koinonia, different words used. Well, that's the word partaker is the word fellowship. It's important. In other words... That's man's universal participation in flesh and blood. It means to hold something in common. When it comes to all of us in here, the common lot is the fact that we were born flesh and blood. All of us born out of Adam. So the verb is actually in the perfect tense, which means at a point in time, Adam... And continuing on through all of humanity, we all today share a common natural beginning. You are in flesh and blood continually. Does everybody get that? That's what that means, co-sharers. Of course, again, at one point means out of Adam. Flesh and blood. That's been common to all of us as human beings. However, the next word, see it in the text, chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share koinonia in flesh and blood... He, Jesus, himself likewise partook. That word, partook, or took part, refers to Jesus. It's altogether different. The verb translates to hold something which is not naturally one's own kind. Here we are, wading in deep theology, right? You see, flesh and blood has always been our lot. It's been 
our beginning since the existence, but flesh and blood has not belonged to Jesus for all eternity. In His eternal pre-existence, until he, His human conception, before the birth and incarnation, previous to that, He existed in pure spirit for all eternity. Because no man has seen God and lived. God lives in invisible and dwells in invisible light. And that's what the Son of God was before He condescended to this earth and took on what was common to us, meaning your flesh and blood. His eternal existence as God never changed. But His personal expression of His existence changed because He added your and my humanity. When children, what children does the writer have in mind? He did this for children. I think he's talking about all of mankind, but in particular, those who come to know him as Lord and Savior. All human beings co-share in flesh and blood. But Jesus did not co-share in that until he partook of it at a point in time. And that took place in Bethlehem when he came down from glory and was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Think about the staggering implications of this. There has been a bond made between God and man like never before. And I've reminded you over and over again that there's nothing more important than the incarnation of the Son of God. We have no chance of heaven nor salvation if the Son of God does not leave the confines of heaven and come down to this earth and share in flesh and blood. That's how important this is. There are five times in the New Testament when flesh and blood is used. And it has to do with the fact that we are flesh and blood. And it describes our frailty. It describes our potential for mortality. The fact that we're frail, we're finite, uh, we're going to die. We're, we're not immortal, we're mortal. And when the word flesh and blood is used, or, or, or flesh of my flesh... Bone of my bones. Even Adam was saying, she is one just like me, but yet we're going to die. Flesh and blood. Uh, that, that's what later is panned out, or you see in the book of Genesis, when death enters into this world. So God has established a bond between himself and handicapped humanity in the incarnation of his son. Now, I think one great place where this incarnational truth is seen is found in Genesis chapter 14. Do y'all remember Lot? Lot makes a grievous decision. He makes a decision that doesn't honor God whatsoever. And Abraham could have responded after Lot makes this decision. Abraham has to go into battle to protect him. Abraham could have said, you know what? Well deserved. Lot, you made your bed, now you lie in it. Right? It would have been totally, uh, humanly speaking, the thing to do. But that's not what he did. The bond of flesh and blood between Abraham and Lot left no revenge in Abraham's mind. He didn't even stop to consider the implications of his nephew's selfishness and blatant ingratitude. Instead, Abraham took immediate uh, immediate action and secured the release of an unworthy nephew. That's what you are. And that's what I am. We're all unworthy nephews. We're, we're in frailty. That we're mortal. And yet the Son of God would come down from heaven with that bond of flesh and blood and unite Himself with humanity so that He could save unworthy people like me and you. 
What an incarnational truth we see. He swept away all of my unworthiness and saw the need of my heart. And that's what He does for everybody that comes to know Him personally. He acted to rescue and recover us from the bondage of sin despite our terrible unworthiness. Why would God Almighty want to put on a human body? You checked your body out this morning? The thing's in a mess. It stinks at times. It's rude at times. Think about it for a moment. Why would God do this? Well, if, he were ever, if we were ever to be made like Him, He had to first be made like us. Think about Christmas, folks. Maybe you're thinking of it for the first time like you should be thinking. If He is to give us His Spirit, He had to first take on our flesh. If we were ever to be partakers of His divine nature, He must first be a partaker of our human nature. We were flesh and blood by nature, but He became flesh and blood by choice. Why? The bottom line is, folks, He now has flesh and blood that can be rent, that can be torn, And he now has blood that can be shed. He now has a nature that is capable of dying. God can't die, folks. But the Son of God, the God-man who took on human flesh and was 100% God and 100% man, he did this so that he could die. He now has blood that can be shed and he can die for us. He not only made a bond between God and man, but he also established a brotherhood with us. That's why I read verses 11 and 12, where it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Aren't you thankful for the fact that the Son of God, who is absolutely perfect, that would come down from heaven and live a perfect life and die for us, is willing to call us brothers? All because of the bond that he made with our flesh and blood. It reminds me of another story in the Word. It reminds me of Joseph being in the presence of Pharaoh. And his brothers have sold him into slavery. You remember that? And they come down because in Genesis 37, they come down into, into Egypt. And they had treated Joseph shamefully. They didn't try to hide their disdain for their brother at all. They abused him, mistreated him, threw him into a cistern, and finally into Egyptian slavery. They spurned their very family tie. Think about that. Their brotherhood and their father. And you have too. And however many years later, when they came before Joseph and repented with brokenness, the Bible says he was not ashamed to call them brothers. He forgave their earlier atrocities and received them freely. And though they were all outcasts as shepherds of Israel, Joseph took them into the presence of Pharaoh. Listen to this. He took them into the presence of Pharaoh and presented them before his throne. And they were accepted by him because of Joseph. I want to tell you, folks, today you're only accepted before God the Father because of your elder brother. We could actually call Christmas an elder brother to the rescue. Right? Wake up. Brother... Brother to the rescue. Aren't you thankful for that kind of brother that would come and save us and present us before God the Father? Not because anything you had ever done, but because of the fact that you are robed in the very righteousness of the Son of God. So that's number one. He accepted our flesh. 
Here's the second thing I want you to see. Jesus Christ accosted our foe. Do you see the text of Scripture? The Bible says, Likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to it. Now, Hebrews deals with some gigantic themes, does it not? It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. When it comes to the doctrine of Christ and all that Hebrews has to talk about, it's incredible. You know, there's only one time in the book of Hebrews where the devil is mentioned. If I said one time, then you know where it is. Right here, right? This is the only time that that foe is mentioned. As many, uh, with, with as many details and incredible subjects, here it is, he's bringing it up. So this is the only mention of him. One preacher describes Satan as the one who uses people up and then throws them away. That is so true, folks. The force of Satan is like the law of gravity. Gravity is no real problem until you try to pick something up. Right? Well, I want you to think about this for a moment. There is such a... There's such bad theology in this world today. You either have people who see a demon under every rock... Or you have people who are so unaware of the enemy that it's scary. Well, I want to remind you that the only person that doesn't believe that Satan is real and powerful is the person who has never attempted to combat him in his ways. Just like gravity. I mean, we walk around like everything's fine until you try to pick something up. And all of a sudden, Katie barred the door. There's something wrong with this. I can't pick this boulder up, right? Well, the enemy is there, folks. It's like... Henry Martin, the great missionary to India, once said, When I entered the way of Christ, the serpent threw off his mask. If you're not doing anything for Jesus, then you're not aware of the fact that you have an enemy. If you're just floating through your Christian life, if that's possible, which I think it's not, and you're not mindful of the fact that you have an enemy, then you need to start engaging the enemy, and it needs to start costing you something to be a believer. I want our church to threaten the enemy. We want to be a church that threatens the enemy. If we're not threatening the enemy, then we're never going to have to worry about the enemy at all. But I'm telling you, folks, the, the fact of the matter is, Satan is real, and he was a powerful foe. Jesus believed in Satan and demons. That's good enough for me. I'm going to stick with Jesus, right? And so, he's a real powerful force. But let me show you the length of this passage of Hebrews and the, and the fact that he accosted, stood to the face of, confronted our enemy. Look with me in Luke chapter 11, verse 21. Luke chapter 11, verse 21. We're speaking of the fact that Jesus confronted, accosted. Uh, he stared down the enemy for us. Chapter 11, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... His goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is entrusted and divides his spoil. Now, the NLT goes ahead and tells you who the first strong one is. Who is it? Now, I want to remind you of something. When we started this, we had five. Now, I will preach both of those Advent sermons since I missed last week's if y'all don't start listening. <laughs> All right? Started with five, right? Who's the strong one? 
It's, the, it's Satan. The NLT goes ahead and gives you the context and helps you with the word. But the strong man armed, the NLT supplies it for you, is Satan. It says, for when Satan... Now think about this great statement. The strong man armed is Satan. The KJV and the ESV says he keeps his palace. The word means that he's guarding it. The strong man, Satan, guards his palace. Okay? So the world is like a palace of many valuable goods in it. And Satan is that strong man and he guards his palace. And he temporarily, as the Bible teaches us, is the God of this age. Small g. And he jealously guards his own province. And as long as the strong man guards the palace undisturbed, his goods are safe and he's at peace. His goods, in my opinion, are the souls of lost men. The Bible says it clearly. Satan hath blinded the eyes of those, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ enters them. So his goods, in my opinion, are lost souls. It's, it's Satan's property because of sin. And every lost person, whether you think this or not, is owned and operated by Satan until Jesus sets you free. The Bible says you're either of your father... God the Father, or you're of your father the devil. There's no in-between. There's no neutral. And so he guards that. But thank God for the stronger one. Is anybody listening? I'm fixing to preach myself happy. Think about this. Think about the stronger one. And the text says that when the stronger one comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from his all his armor wherein he trusted, and he divides the spoil. The stronger one is Jesus Christ the Lord. And he has come upon Satan. He's invaded Satan's palace. And he seeks to destroy and deliver. He has overcome. The word means to bind. Jesus has armed. Jesus disarmed him. He's drawn the firing pin out of the gun. Humlet Thilek, the German pastor who led his people even to outlast Hitler said this, the serpent's tail may rattle, but his head is already crushed. That goes back to Genesis 3.15, unless y'all hadn't figured that out, right? He shall bruise your heel, but you shall crush his head. Mm. Let me summarize this. Jesus came into Satan's palace. That's what Christmas is all about, folks. That's Christmas. The Son of God came into Satan's palace. Second, he conquered Satan's power. He overcame him. Third, Jesus captured his possessions. He took his armor. He took from him his armor wherein he trusted. Fourth, Jesus claimed Satan's property. He devised the spoils. Larry Christensen wrote a tiny tract once called Old Landlord. I haven't had you raise your hand yet, but has anybody ever heard of this? Old Landlord. Still no takers, right? Well, he said, think of yourself as living in an apartment house. And you have lived there under this landlord who's made your life absolutely miserable. Anybody ever had that situation? He charged you an exorbitant rent, and when you couldn't pay, he would actually loan you money at a fearful rate of interest. The landlord came, barging into your apartment on all hours of the day, and... He would even wreck your place and dirty it up, and then he would charge you extra for maintaining your premises. Your life was a misery. Then came along someone who said, I've taken over the apartment house, and you can live here as long as you want to rent-free. 
Hallelujah. Right? The rent is paid up. And I'm going to be living here with you in the manager's apartment. What a joy. You're saved. You're delivered out of the clutches of the old landlord. But what happens? You hardly have time to rejoice in your new management when there's an old familiar knock at the door. And there's this old landlord. He's mean. He's nasty. He's demanding. And he has come for the rent. What do you do? Do you pay him? Well, absolutely not. you got a new manager. Do you punch him in the nose? No, that's not Christ-like, right? He's bigger than you are, by the way. You quietly and confidently say to him, Take it up with my new manager. Take it up with my new manager. He may bellow and threaten, but you simply say, Take it up with the new manager. He may come to you even dozens of times, which he does, right? With every threat in the book. He might even wave some legal-looking papers at you and face you down, but you calmly tell him, Take it up with my new manager. As a matter of fact, if you look up on the files of my life to find Satan one thing to indict me on, you can't find it because the debt has been paid in full. Aren't you thankful that he accosted our foe? He did. That's what Jesus did. Now, he may still have his usual appearance, and he still has his threat, but the firing pin is gone from his gun. If you belong to Jesus Christ... The only way the enemy can touch you is if Jesus gives him the right to do so. Aren't you thankful for our heavenly land, Lord? The power that Satan has is permitted power. It's only going to be for a while. Now, this is what Jesus has done for us regarding Satan. He's taken away that key weapon. And the fact of the matter is, that's the next point. What is our defense? Our defense is the righteousness of Jesus. He accepted our flesh, accosted our foe, and here's the third thing. He has accomplished our freedom. Notice the text, and for all of you in here today, I really pray that you look at this in the passage. Verse 15, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ, this is Christmas, has accomplished our Freedom. Now, to help us understand the magnitude of this, there are two nouns supplied in this text. You know which two they are? Devil and death. And there are two verbs that are given here in the text deliver and destroy. You need to think about those. Now, to understand, think about the nouns death and devil. The connection between devil and death is made very clear in this text. Do you know that death is Satan's stock in trade? Death is the devil's business. Jesus said the thief comes not but to... Oh, you got one right. To kill, steal, and destroy. He loves to kill us body, soul, and spirit. Physically, psychologically, spiritually, and even eternally. But the death that is referred to in Hebrews 2.15 is physical death. Clearly. In the text is physical death. Now, those two verbs. The first one, destroy. It defines how Jesus Christ came to accomplish our freedom. Do you know that? The Bible says, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's come to destroy Satan's power of death. 
And that word destroy is not the word annihilation. Because we know Satan still exists temporarily. But what does it mean? It does not mean to put out of existence. It means to put out of business. Right? The word means to render inoperative and or nullify. So it's like, again, it's like a rifle with a firing pin out of it. It has its usual appearance, but it doesn't have its usual threat to the child of God. But it has been put out of business. It cannot shoot an intended victim anymore. The power of the devil is a reference to death. And folks, that is simply permitted power by our God. But this permitted power is not limited to mere physical death. It also extends up into eternal death. Now it's an awful thing to think about for a moment. That there is in this universe a being possessed of such power that he would make the sinner the instrument of his own exposure to misery throughout all eternity. Satan doesn't send anybody to hell. But that's where you're going to be if you reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And here is an enemy who knows his eternal fate, and yet he wants you to be there with him. This is who we're dealing with here. This is what Jesus has done in regard to Satan's key weapon of death. Think about this. How did Jesus put him out of business? How did Jesus put Satan's stock-in-trade death out of business? Listen, the Bible says that through death he might destroy. It was through death that he gave the death blow to death. It was through his own death on Calvary that he put an end to Satan's stock in trade of death. The text answers it, that through his death he might destroy. He used, his, he used death itself. And so death itself was killed. When Christ died for the Christian, death died. It was the death of death for a believer. Now remember, Satan had the power of death. Death was his chief weapon in his arsenal. But through his own death, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality, 2 Timothy, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what our God has done for us. There's another verb, and it's called deliver. You see it? The Bible says here, check this out, and deliver all those through fear of death and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now that long summary statement is a long lifetime, isn't it? Some of you in this place, you're just overtaken by the fear of death. It literally has been your lifelong misery. And that's what this text says. Are y'all paying attention? Folks, this is important. Really, super important through fear of death, has kept them in bondage. It's been slavery. Now, it's a serious and sober thing to think about death, isn't it? As a matter of fact, uh, Hebrews 9.27, a little later, says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Death is an appointment, and you're not going to escape judgment. And that's, that's kind of sober, and that's serious. Death hovers over many like a dark cloud, and the fear of death lingers within many as a dark threat throughout the entire life of the individual. And they are truly enslaved by the fear of death. An old proverb says, He who dies, dies but once. But he who fears death dies a thousand times. Maybe you've died a thousand times. Thinking about death. So the fear of death is very, very, very 
real. And the bondage that it fosters in your life can be absolutely overwhelming. However, a spiritual transformation has occurred since Jesus died and rose again. Amen? Since Jesus conquered death, the old Scottish Christians used to say the death, death has lost its chill since Jesus crossed the river. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. Right? Death's chilly, chilly waters. I'll soon be crossing. But his hands will lead me safely on. And I'll join the chorus in that bright city. And forevermore I will sing. Y'all know that song is called, Oh, What a Savior. What an awesome Savior. Did you know that when Christ came to this earth and lived, a burial place was called a necropolis. Necros in the Greek means dead. Okay? So it was called a necropolis, a city of the dead. A gradual transformation took place after Jesus died and rose again. And a, a burial place today is called a cormortarian. Koi-materian, which is defined as a cemetery or a sleeping place. Check this out. Only a sleeping place for dead bodies. You know... A cemetery is a dormitory for dead bodies, awaiting the call of the dorm master to say to you, wake up. And if you're saved and you know Jesus, that's exactly what a cemetery is. Even the Old Testament anticipated Christ for a transformation of death when the Bible says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. Now note, even God's saints sicken and die. We've had that happen this year at our church, haven't we? We've had... God-fearing believers who died, some accidentally, some by natural causes, some by cancer. The, the list goes on. But the death of a saint, saint takes place in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't even take his eyes off you even unto your death. Because he's accomplished our freedom. He calls your death precious and valuable. Second Corinthians 5.1 says this, For we know that if the tent... That's it, folks. Look at yourself and say, I'm in a tent. Go ahead. I'm in a tent. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Hallelujah. Right? Whether you like it or not, you're going to put that tent off one day. You are. You're going to put it off. You live in a body... That is like a portable tabernacle or a tent. Your dwelling place on earth is temporal. But your heavenly reward is eternal. When you're given it by the Lord. By the way, he's going to give you a new body. Like unto the Lord uh, when he calls the bodies from the dead. The believing Christian, you don't belong to death. I said all that to tell you this. If you're lost today, you belong to death. But if you're saved, death belongs to you. The devil uses death as termination. God uses it as transition. There's a major difference in those two. A godly man gave this testimony of faith when he was on his deathbed. I have no fear coming to the river of death. My father owns land on both sides of the river. Aren't you thankful that he's accomplished our freedom? Do you really know what Jesus did for you when he accepted your flesh?
when he accosted your foe and he accomplished your freedom. I remember a few years ago, several years ago, probably 10 or 12 years ago, one of my friends who's a missionary in Thailand was flying on that 15 to 18 hour trip on a plane. And he said, you know, he said, I never think about death like I do when I'm on a plane. Hey, I can, you know, you know, I'm not in control on a plane. There's, just a, there's a few times in life when you're not in control, and that drives me crazy. When you're under anesthesia, I'm just telling you, you don't have control. You're out. And that makes me uncomfortable, Brother Andy, right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's the truth. You're, you, you're, you don't have any control. Well, when you're on a plane, unless you're the pilot, you have no control. Right? And Ronnie told me, he's, when he spoke to me that day, he said, you know, the fear of death gripped me that day on that plane. And said, not only, here's a missionary in Thailand full time, said, not only did it grip my life, but it made me think about my mom and dad. You know, how much longer do they have? And he said, it just put me under bondage, just like that text. Brought me under slavery. He said, then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit of God prompted my mind. But Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus conquered death. I stood at a veteran's memorial over here for a funeral this week of a 95-year-old man. You know, it really doesn't matter if you live 20 years, 50 years, or 95 years. It's not the length of the days. It's whether or not your, your life was on center or not. Right? If you knew the Lord. But I stood there at that memorial, and they had that American flag draped over the casket. And I, I thanked them. You know, the flag ought to mean something. We drove up to the church a while ago, and I saw the, the flag flying. I was like, mm, I like that. I, the only thing I'd like to do is reverse those flags. Put the Christian on top, American below. Y'all okay with that? And we should never fly a flag that's got a rip in it. Take her down and fix it. Right? But just, I forgot what I was going to tell you. Where was I headed with that? I don't forget. Anyway, my mind's gone. Yes, funeral. Thanks, Blake. You are good for something. All right? Look, yes, at that funeral, I stood there, 95-year-old man. I said, the flag ought to mean something. I mean, here are these military guys standing around. And, boy, they're, that's the respect they have for this body. But then I opened up the Word. I said, let me tell you what the Bible says about the body. 1 Corinthians 15. This perishable body cannot attain imperishable. This corruptible body cannot see incorruption. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory. Because in a twinkling of an eye, He's going to change your body. And He's going to make it... Not only is it going to be sinless, but it'll be perfected. And you're not going to be in heaven floating around like a phantom. You're going to be in heaven forever because Jesus accomplished your, free, your freedom. You're going to be in heaven body, soul, and spirit. Amen. Praise God. Do you realize what God did for you when He came down from glory, folks? Some of you in here, you're, you're, you're afraid this can be of death. Today, death can be a friend, not a foe, if you know Jesus. Amen. It's your transition to glory. But the only way that can happen is not fire insurance saying, oh God, I'm scared of hell. No, and, and some of us have that attitude that, Lord, I'll just live this life and when I die and I'm annihilated. Folks, don't let the enemy lie to you. You're going to live somewhere forever. Your soul will never die. It will live eternally with the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished your freedom. Or are you going to live eternally in hell with the enemy? That's what the Bible teaches.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. God, I thank you that you accepted my flesh. Not because you had to, but because you chose to. Lord, thank you that you have destroyed the enemies. Lord, destroyed the the devil and the demons of hell. Sure, they're still in existence, but they're on barred time. They're on a leash, and it won't be long before you pop their necks. And thank you that you accomplished our freedom. All because of your willingness to come to this earth, to be born in Bethlehem, to live a life on this earth for 33 years and never one time sin. And then as the God-man, you took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary and you died the death that we all deserved. You paid a penalty, a ransom. You became the ransom for our sins. The blood atonement, the blood of goats and calves could never fully atone for sin, but you, according to Hebrews, gave your life, your blood, once for all time, to save us from our sins. We thank you for it, Lord. What a great day it would be for someone to walk the aisle and say, Jesus accepted my flesh. He accosted my foe. And he accomplished my freedom. What a great day to trust Jesus as Lord. Father, would you speak to hearts today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.